The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Revelation 6 actually begins the main part of the book of Revelation as to what Jesus wanted to reveal through John. Chapters, basically 1 through 5 in Revelation was all preparatory and introduction for 6 through 22. So we are now at the meat of the book. And chapters 6 through 22 is all future. None of it has happened yet. None of it is happening during the church age. It is all prophetic. It is all future. In the words of John, three times in the book of Revelation, he refers to this future period, Revelation 6 through 22, as the things which shall take place after these things. A strict reference to these are yet future events. From his perspective during the church age, Revelation 119, he told us that. So these are future events. Uh, it's important to say that because you might have a study Bible that says otherwise. That is not uncommon. As a matter of fact, perusing through and studying through 40 to 50 different commentaries on Revelation, when you get to chapter 6 through 22, it gets really confusing. Really confusing. And if you don't take a consistent approach to reading Scripture, studying Scripture, and interpreting Scripture, meaning just taking everything normally at face value instead of getting all allegorical and symbolic and esoteric. If you just take a normal approach, that's the easiest way to understand Scripture, and that's how God gave us Scripture to understand it. But if you take any other approach, like a symbolic, metaphorical, allegorical point of view, just on Revelation, like some Bible scholars do, they end up all over the map, and they don't agree. Because they're, they're trying, they're pulling interpretations out of the air of what they think this vision means or how it applies instead of, well, let's just, to the best of our ability, take it at face value. Take it normally. We would say literally, not wooden literally, but take it literally. And I believe the scripture will become clear. Well, you mean you take the Bible literally? Yeah, I do. I believe Adam was a real guy. Eve was a real woman. Adam really died at 930 years of age. Eve was really made out of a rib. Well, that's impossible. Yeah, God does the impossible. He does miracles. A snake really talked. The other miracles that Eve talked back to the snake. Um, and on and on it goes. Jesus really walked on water. And everything in Revelation, even though much of it, if you take it literally, it seems beyond comprehension. These things can't possibly be literal. I'd say, yeah, they are. And by and then when you get into literal, well, what do you mean by literal? Because you have to make a distinction of what's literal. And with John, John was a literal person. The events were literal. He really lived in 95 A.D. He literally wrote this down. He literally got this vision. Jesus literally spoke to him. And the vision that he had was literal. In other words, he literally saw these images. But the, image, the images that he saw were not literal. They were real, but they were communicating different truth. They were, so these visions and symbols he saw were trying to communicate literal truth. So you have to be discerning and, but taking the Bible at face value is how you should read every page of scripture. So let's go ahead and go to Daniel chapter 9. That's just a little background information because it needs to be said because so many Christians find the book of Revelation to be very difficult to understand and interpret. And if you're reading many different commentaries, you're going to be confused because they're going to just lead you all over the place, contradict one another. 
by not taking the Bible at face value and literally. But as we get to the part of the tribulation in 6 through 22 in Revelation, it is absolutely essential that we understand that the book of Daniel is like part one of Revelation. You can't understand Revelation if you don't understand the book of Daniel. So Daniel is the foundation, the groundwork, and part one of the book of Revelation. Because if you just read Revelation cold turkey with no Old Testament background or reading whatsoever, you're just going to think, boy, this is weird. This is out of nowhere. This has no context. John is just pulling these things out of the air. He's not. They come and flow right out of the Old Testament, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy to a T. For example, we're going to look at four horses today. A white horse, a red horse, a black horse, a pale Spotted, green, yellow, deadly-looking horse. John didn't just make that up. Jesus didn't just reveal that for the first time. John, the apostle, was an Old Testament scholar, probably had the Old Testament memorized. And in John's mind, when he saw those four horses, the first thing he thought was Zechariah 6. Those same colored four horses. The revealed future prophecy and God's judgment upon the earth. So that's just one example. This is rooted and flows out of the Old Testament. So with that, let's go to Daniel. And I'm just going to... If you have a Bible and you're following along reading, that'll really be helpful for you. Or just listening carefully. Because I want to really make it clear, because you can get lost rather quickly in eschatology and end times prophecy and all these images. And Boy, what does that mean? So I don't want it to be confusing. Trying to alleviate the confusion as much as possible. Highlighting clarity. So here we go. Here's the background. Just some of the background. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is given a vision, just like John had a vision. Some were of his day, but some of these visions were of the future that haven't yet happened yet. Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night. God gave him this vision, prophetic vision. And behold, the four winds of the heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up out of the sea, different from one another. Beasts. What were they? Verse 4, the first beast was a lion. Verse 5, the second beast was a bear. Verse 6, the third beast was a leopard. Verse 7, after this I kept looking in the night visions and behold a fourth beast. Dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong and different than all the other beasts. So he has this weird vision of these four beasts. Well, what are these? Well... One area where Bible scholars are pretty much unanimous is that the the lion referred to Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar, the bear, Medo-Persia, the kingdom that came after, and then, verse 6, the leopard to Greece and Alexander the Great. So those have all been fulfilled. Then he gets to the fourth beast. This is yet future. This is a coming kingdom. It is yet future. It hasn't happened yet. And it's a beast, a king, and a kingdom greater than all the others that came before, greater than Babylon, greater than Greece, greater than Nebuchadnezzar. And that last fourth beast is referring to things that happen at the end time when a king arises and a kingdom that arises in the last days. How do you know this? Well, if you keep reading the whole context, Daniel chapter 8 verse 17 says this. Gabriel the angel. So Daniel has his vision. He's scratching his head and he wants to know, what does this mean? What are these beasts? What's going on? And then God answers his prayer. And he sends Gabriel the angel. And one of the things that Gabriel tells Daniel is, well, regarding these visions, son of man, Daniel, Understand this, that the vision pertains to the time of the end. That's pretty much the context of 
Daniel in this section. It is the end times, how the world is going to end, how God is going to fulfill His judgment and earthly kingdom and the ushering in of Jesus Christ as Messiah on earth. Now going back to Daniel 7.17, these great beasts which are four in number are four kings who will arise from the earth. Three have already arisen, one is yet future. Verse 19 in Daniel 7, Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, this mysterious beast, the greatest beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. What was this? Who was this? Daniel's asking. Verse 20, And the meaning of the ten horns. So this beast had ten horns on its head. And the other horn which came up out of those horns, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. So this beast had horns sticking out of its head. Verse 21, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. This is talking about the last days during the tribulation period when this beast, this king, is going to arise, and one of the things he does is he hates God and he persecutes believers. Notice it doesn't say he's persecuting Christians or the church. It's simply holy ones, the saints. Any believer of any age, whether it's an Old Testament Jew who got saved, whether it's Job who was maybe a Gentile who got saved, saint, the most generic word for a believer, that's who this Antichrist is going to make war with and attack. Verse 21, he goes on, Daniel 7:22, And this is going to go on during the tribulation period for seven years. Uh, we know that, and we'll see that in just a second, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of, of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. That's at the end of the tribulation. Verse 23, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth. Notice he earlier he said it was a king. Now he's saying it's a kingdom. It will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth. Can't be Rome of the first century. Rome did not devour the entirety of the earth the way it is described in Revelation 6 through 18. 6 through 18 and its devastation is universal. It is worldwide. No one escapes. Verse 24 as for the ten horns out of the kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. Verse 25, Daniel 7. And he will speak out against the Most High. Whoever this, One of them is going to arise out of this kingdom, probably uh, what Jesus called one of many antichrists, empowered by Satan himself, and he's going to speak out blasphemously against God the Most High. And he will wear down the saints. He's going to wear them down, persecute them. We see that in Revelation 6-18. through 18. He's going to wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to get this. He's going to, make, he's going to try to make alterations in times and in law. Isn't that amazing? Trying to change times. Seasons and times which God has established. Maybe changing the seven-day week to eight days, to six days, or whatever. Changing the calendar. And trying to change laws. The implication is long-established, historic, transcending laws. Like the law of marriage that God has defined. Who knows? But that's what he's going to try to do. He's going to try to do what is unprecedented and unbelievable. And they will be given into his hand for a time, time. And have the, the, the people who belong to God. Believers doing the tribulation will actually be given into the hand of the Antichrist, to a degree. And his persecution. But there's a limit to it because it's a time. This is Hebrew and Aramaic. Time is one year. Times, that's two years. Half a time, that's half a year. That's three and a half years. The seven-year tribulation is divided into two parts. 
The beginning of birth pains, the first three probably, and then the last three and a half years called the Great Tribulation. Those were Jesus' words in Matthew 24. He called that last three and a half years the Great Tribulation. A time, a times, and half a times. Three and a half years. And then in case we should doubt that and say, well, how do you know a time, times, and half a time means three and a half years, McManus? Well, because in the book of Revelation, John uses the exact same phrase for that period. He calls it a time times and half a time and then he goes on to define it even more specifically and then he calls it 42 months do the math and then he calls it 1365 days or whatever he names the exact days it is three and a half years the great tribulation so daniel has been given this information for background regarding the antichrist the coming kingdom the tribulation the coming of the messiah in the book of daniel Daniel chapter 7, verse 17, Gabriel tells him, Reminder, son of man, understand that all this vision I've been telling you about, it pertains to the end time, the latter days, the end of the world, the culmination of world history. Another key information that Daniel received is Daniel chapter 9. If you've got your Bible there, flip over. I need to read Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, because here's another vignette to set a context of when this is going to happen historically, even with time frames established. Daniel was told that 77s have been decreed for your people and your holy city. That's the literal Hebrew language, seven sevens. English translations sometimes say 70 weeks. Weeks, it's a horrible translation. It's sevens, 77s. That's just a Hebrew idiom for referring to 70 times seven of years, which is 490 years. 490 years have been decreed, broken up in increments of seven years. Seventy sevens have been decreed for your people, the Jews and the saints, and your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression. God is going to deal with sin about 500 years after Daniel, and He did with the coming of the Messiah. That's what it's talking about, verse 24. To make an end of sin, Christ's death on the cross, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. The, the amazing thing there is all in that one verse, it makes reference to Christ's Two comings. His first coming when he died as Savior is the first part of the verse. And then when he comes to seal up prophecy and fulfill vision and fulfill everything, that's his second coming. Daniel didn't realize there's 2,000 years between the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse. So there's going to be a break somewhere between that 490 years. And there is. Verse 25, So you are to know, Daniel, discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be... Seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. That's sixty-nine sevens. That's 483 years. So he's saying, Daniel, out of that 490 years, in 483 years, something amazing is going to happen, and that's Jesus is going to die on the cross. But then there's seven more years unaccounted for. That seven years unaccounted for is referring to the last days. One more period of seven years when everything will be fulfilled as he spoke at the end of verse 24. 62 weeks. It will be built again in the plaza moat even in times of distress. Verse 26. Then after the 60, the 62 sevens or the 69 total, the Messiah will be cut off. He will be crucified. That happened 483 years after this was fulfilled and have nothing in the people of the prince, the prince who is to come. That's probably the Antichrist. And the people of the prince who is to come, he will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations, are determined. Now he's catapults us into the future during the time of the tribulation. 
in verse 27 is talking about that future tribulation, that last period of seven weeks. And he, that's the prince, that is the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many. The many is probably believers, probably believing Jews, for one seven. So this coming Antichrist is going to make a covenant of peace with believers, probably believing Jews for the most part, for a seven-year period. But in the middle of the seven, in the middle of that seven-year period, he will put a stop to sacrifice. He's going to break his covenant. He's going to break his contract. He's going to lie to the believing Jews. Right in the middle of it. Three and a half years will go by. Boom, he breaks the covenant. He will put a stop to grain uh, sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. Notice that there is a temple there. Sacrifices are going on. Maybe part of the covenant is to rebuild some kind of a temple, a formal place for believing Jews to meet and worship, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So Daniel gives us these pictures and portraits of the end times, the tribulation, this coming Antichrist. And then finally in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, Daniel said this, Now at that time, the end of the age, during the tribulation, Michael, the archangel, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress. Literally, there will be a time of tribulation. In the words of Jesus, there will be a time of great tribulation. That's what he called it in Matthew 24. Jesus made up that phrase, great tribulation. There will be a time of distress. How great? Just localized in Jerusalem, like some commentators want to tell us? No. It's not localized in Jerusalem. It is universal and it is unprecedented. This time of distress and tribulation, because that's what Daniel says. There will be a time of distress such has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Unprecedented. And then Daniel says, well, tell me more about it. I want to know the details. And then in verse 4 he says, sorry, these words are concealed. And then in verse 9, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end times. Until the end times. No more information will be given. And then Jesus comes, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, sends His apostles, and His apostles who lived in the end times begin to reveal all the rest of the details of the end times, giving us information Daniel would have loved to know that we have the privilege of now knowing. Amazing. So let's go ahead and go to Revelation now as we look at the beginning of this seven-year tribulation as predicted very specifically by God through Daniel. And not just Daniel, by the way. We could be looking at Zechariah, Joel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, but we don't have time. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, we left off in the throne room. John got his vision. He saw Jesus the Lion, Jesus the Lamb, take the seven-sealed scroll from God the Father, and in that scroll was written decrees from God of judgment upon the world, fulfilling Scripture, bringing history to a culmination so that God could usher in His kingdom and bring it down from heaven onto the earth in fulfillment of Jesus' prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth. That is the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. Literally, the kingdom will be brought down to earth. So that's what's in that seven-sealed scroll, is the events of the future. And I would propose that this scroll, and Jesus, by the way, is the one that unrolls the scroll. He unseals the scroll with authority, and then He unrolls it. He's the only one that has authority. In other words, every time He takes off a seal, He is implementing the decree of the Father. Everything that happens in Revelation 6 through 22 happened because Jesus made it happen 
in fulfillment of God ordaining it to happen. God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are totally in control of everything that happens. That's comforting for a believer because that's also true today. The good, the bad, and the ugly, God is in control of it all. Nothing takes Him by surprise. So Jesus has this, He's taken the scroll from the Father. It is the scroll of the end times. And He's about to undo the scroll one seal at a time, all seven seals, and reveal the information and the content in that scroll. And the content of the scroll is Revelation 6 through 19 for the most part. So let's go ahead and look at it. And by the way, the content of this scroll, until you get to Revelation 19, the content from Revelation 6 to 18 is all judgment. It is all wrath. It is the wrath of God. Well, well, the wrath of God on who? Well, it is directed towards somebody very specific. Some would actually have us believe that the church and Christians are in the tribulations at this time while God's wrath is being poured out. And I would say, I don't think so. Uh, Revelation, we already read this, but in Revelation, just by way of reminder, Revelation 3.10, here is a promise to believers. Here is a promise to the church, a promise to Christians. The bride of Christ. Believers are never called Christians or the church in the Old Testament. The bride of Christ, the body of Christ, more specifically. Believers are never called the body of Christ in the Old Testament. That is absolutely unique to the church as an entity of believing people. So Revelation 3.10, here was Jesus' promise to the body of Christ, the church, to Christians. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, he who, by the way, verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, to the churches, not just the church of Philadelphia. There are implications for us. And here's a prophecy that is yet future. It is coming. It is worldwide. It is unprecedented. It is universal. It is literal. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I, Jesus, also will keep, will, future tense, keep you from the hour, from the time period, from the seven years. Very specific language here. I will keep you from the hour of trial, the hour of testing, the hour of punishment. That hour, which is about to come upon, notice, not just Jerusalem, it's not localized, the whole world, the whole world. Same language used in Matthew 24 by Jesus, same language used by Daniel in Daniel 12.1. The whole world, it is universal. The hour of testing, the, te- the hour of tribulation, trial, wrath, punishment that is coming upon universally the entire world. Well, who is this directed towards God? Who is this intended for? This wrath, this tribulation, your fury, unmitigated. The end of verse 10. For the purpose of, or to try, or to test those who dwell upon the earth. And I talked about this earlier in Revelation 3.10, in case you forgot, to punish earth dwellers. It's a participle, it's a specific word, it's used 13 times in Revelation, and that word, earth dwellers, is a technical term for rebels who hate God in the book of Revelation. Every time you see that phrase, earth dwellers, or those who dwell upon the earth, it is always an unbeliever who is a rebel against God, sticking his fist in God's face. That is the purpose of the tribulation, to test, to punish rebels, not the church. So let's go ahead and look at these uh, seals as Jesus begins to peel these seals away one at a time. And with each seal that he unpeels, it's actually on the end of the scroll, he unrolls a little bit. And the content of what is in that scroll isn't read. The content of what is in the scroll actually is displayed by way of vision and happens as an action. And these are judgments. So today we're going to look at the first four judgments of God's wrath at the beginning of the tribulation. 
in the first four seals. And the reason I'm taking those four together is because they, they're a unit. They do go together because the first four seals are actually first are four horses. So they're a unit and they go together. And they happen at the beginning of the tribulation. Both Mark 13 and also Matthew 24, Jesus very clearly talked about the seven-year tribulation. And if you look at, if you study Matthew 24, Jesus goes through the entire seven-year tribulation. He doesn't say seven years, but he describes the whole tribulation chronologically, sequentially. He starts at the beginning of the tribulation, calling it the beginning of birth pangs. He refers specifically to the middle time of the tribulation, and he refers explicitly to the end of the tribulation, which culminates with his coming. So Matthew 24 lays it out beautifully. And Matthew 24 corresponds perfectly to revelation and the order of events. So right now, in the first four seals, the first four horsemen, we are dealing with the beginning of the tribulation as it unfolds. So let's go ahead and look at it. And it's these seals that Jesus takes one at a time. So let's look at point number one is the first seal judgment. And that's when Jesus peels off the seal of the scroll, revealing the judgment at hand. And that's verses one and two. And uh, John says, and I saw. So John is still having this vision. And I saw when the Lamb, Jesus, broke one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice as of thunder, Come! So these four living cherubim or seraphim are actually involved in executing judgment at the end of the age. We know that. Jesus uses His angels to bring about judgment. He said that in Matthew 25 as well. So the cherub says, Come! And all of a sudden out of this vision... Verse 2, John's actually startled because he said, and I looked, and behold, that's a startling comment. And behold, a white horse. And there was one sitting upon the white horse. And the one sitting upon the white horse had a bow, as in a bow and arrow. He just refers to the bow. And a crown, a stephanos, versus a diadem, a stephanos, a crown, the victory crown, something that is earned or given to as a reward by a higher authority. A crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. So that's the first seal. This is the first act of judgment. Well, what is this act of judgment that opens up the seven-year tribulation? Well, it's a white horse. By the way, the color of these four horses, uh, we got the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and then this pale green horse. The, the color of the horse actually complements the content of the prophecy. And white horses, pretty, pretty much all throughout Scripture and even history, refer to victory, a warrior who was a conqueror, and that's exactly what this is talking about. So here's the vision. To begin the tribulation, there's going to be a conqueror. Someone is going to take over the world victoriously. We know that because the end of verse 2, it says, whoever was on this white horse, he went out conquering and to conquer. It's the same word. Nike. Overcome. Nike. They're going to be an overcoming one. And it's conquering and then to conquer. And the terms are very specific. Conquering refers to happening many times. There are many victories along the way. He won all of his games during the regular season. Went 22-0. and 0. That's what that means. Little by little. Incrementally. Gaining power. Winning allegiance. Earning loyalty. Gaining trust. At the same time, confiscating land, confiscating thrones, confiscating areas as he's strategically taking over the whole world. So that's what that means when he went out conquering little by little incremental. And then finally he reaches his goal. It says, and to conquer. He reached his goal. Not only did he go undefeated 22-0 on the season, he won the championship. He arrived. 
He got the destination. So whoever this is on this white horse is going to be utilized to go around the world and bring about victory and a universal victory secured on his behalf and the behalf of this kingdom, a satanic kingdom actually, over the entire world. Becomes a monarchy under the hands of somebody. Who is this guy on the horse? I don't know. Scripture, the text doesn't tell us. We don't need to know. But we know what happens and what he does. We do know in Matthew 24 said at the very beginning of the tribulation, Jesus said explicitly that many will come. Many false Christ. This could be one of the many that is utilized by Satan and maybe even the ultimate Antichrist during this time. One of the henchmen, one of the hitmen, for all we know, of the Antichrist. But he comes on a horse. He is, by the way, he's a warrior. And that's how evil, wicked tyrants throughout history have postured themselves to intimidate and also to gain respect as they tried to secure power of everybody. Whether it's Adolf Hitler, who tried to pass himself off as a war hero, Saddam Hussein, same thing, Fidel Castro, always dressed in his army garb. That's what they do. That's what tyrants do. Same thing with this guy, this tyrant on a white horse. Uh, the unique thing about this tyrant is that he's got a bow, so he's a warrior, but there's no arrows mentioned, meaning he probably secures a victory without war, without bloodshed for the most part. So he's very strategic, probably very charismatic, very influential, great administrator and organizer, and apparently is able to secure all of this power without a whole lot of bloodshed Chaos and tumult, we know that he achieves peace because the second thing we're about to see is the next guy that comes takes away that peace. So this guy successfully takes over the whole world. He does it without blood for the most part and he does it securing peace. In other words, every, he's got everything where he wants it all in his lap. And you know what? That's how tyrants throughout history gain their power. They make false promises to the masses. I will help you. I will relieve your pain. I will give you free whatever. I will, I will, that's what Adolf Hitler did for 13 years. Peace, peace, peace. When there is no peace. We saw that in 1 Thessalonians 5, the end of the age. They will, they will promise peace when there isn't peace and sudden desolation will come or devastate. That's exactly what happened here. Or this is what's going to happen in the future. We've seen this repeated over and over again throughout history. So this is the first seal judgment that happens. Universal peace is gained in a bloodless coup through the instrumentation of one very impressive, dynamic, actually God-ordained world warrior and ruler. And by the way, he's operating under the power of God himself. God is the one ordaining all of this to happen. This is in Conjunction with God's plan. God isn't ordaining the evil, but He's ordaining the world events so they might lead to His glory. He's the one that raised up Pharaoh. He's the one that raises up this rider of the white horse. So that is the first judgment. By the way, there are seven seals on that scroll. And I wanted you to see the first seal unveiled so you could see what happens. He, does, he pulls off the seal and then there's judgment about the future. And then He's going to pull off six more seals. Uh, the second seal is in verse 3. We'll look at that. The third seal in verse 5. Follow along with me because I want you to see where the seven seals are that he pulls off. Uh, Revelation 6 verse 7 is the fourth seal he pulls off. Verse 9 is the fifth seal. Verse 12 of chapter 6 is the sixth seal. And then you've got a lot of content that transpires. Chapter 7. And you don't see the seventh seal peeled off until chapter 8 verse 1 where the seventh seal is peeled off. Now, the interesting thing that happens on that last seal, when he peels off the last and seventh seal, 
it's not just one event that happens. What happens, what's inside the seventh seal are seven trumpet judgments are unveiled. Kind of like when you're unwrapping a big box of a present and you open the box and you open it up and inside the box is another box. And then you open that one and inside that box is another box. Telescopic as you keep going. That's what's going on here. Inside the seventh seal are seven more judgments and there are seven trumpet judgments. And look at, keep your eye on chapter eight. Uh, the first trumpet judgment is blown in eight verse two. Or uh, eight, uh, chapter eight verse seven. The second trumpet is blown in verse eight. The third trumpet is blown in verse ten. The fourth trumpet is blown in verse twelve. The fifth trumpet judgment is blown in chapter nine verse one. The sixth trumpet judgment is blown in chapter nine verse thirteen. And then when he gets to the seventh trumpet judgment to blow, that trumpet is blown, uh, chapter 11, verse 15, and the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and guess what happened? Seven more judgments were unveiled at that time. So out of the seven, seventh trumpet comes seven more judgments, and those are called the bowl judgments. And then in chapter 16, those seven bowl judgments are poured out one at a time. So that's how it is. It's telescopic in the way that God is revealing this. And the whole idea, and as we go through, we're going to see that it gets more and more severe at each stage. The trumpet judgments are more severe than the seal judgments. The bold judgments are more severe than the first two previous judgments of trumpets and seals. So it's growing, it is escalating, and even the, the time is compressed as it goes as well as we near spiraling down, really, till the time of the end. So it's quite a complex, it's, it's an artistic literary masterpiece, the book of Revelation. Just the way it is written. Let alone the content of it, of the future. Absolutely amazing. Only a divine mind could be responsible for the inspiration of this text. So going back to chapter 6, let's look at the second seal after this white horse where I believe universal peace is gained in an illegitimate way through a deceiver. And then the second seal, second seal judgment. Oh, by the way, uh, yeah, point number one, the first seal judgment is what I call false peace. And then uh, the second point is the second seal judgment, which is worldwide chaos. That peace that was gained is lost in the second seal judgment. Verse three. And when he broke, when Jesus broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature or angel say, come and another, alas, another, another of the same kind. Another horse just like the other horse and another person on that horse just like the other person on that horse. It was a human. Another of the same kind. And another of the same kind. A red horse came out. And to him who sat on that red horse, it was granted to, notice he was given authority, ultimately by God, but also satanically inspired, it was granted to take peace from the earth. That was his mission. He takes peace from the earth, this false peace that was made after power has been secured. Not only was peace taken from the earth, it was ordained that men should slay one another. Just mass chaos, murder, slaughter. That's why this horse is red. It, re it speaks of blood and blood spewing everywhere. Absolute a mayhem of death. That's what's going to happen. Human beings are going to slay one another. No regard for life. A great sword was given to him. The one spearheading all this death is the one who's in charge. It's the government. Maybe martial law is declared. Boy, that's a red sign and a half if you ever hear a government declaring martial law. And a great sword. This is a huge, massive Roman soldier's sword. that You, all you do one thing. You fight in battle and you lop heads off with it. Blood. Bloodshed. That characterizes the second phase. So immediately after 
peace is established universally and a system is in place, then all of a sudden martial law probably declared and whoever's in charge is going out and just slaughtering people, innocent people, haplessly. And blood is, and death is strewn everywhere. And not only that, with death and with universal death always comes chaos and famine and consequences of war, isn't it? Every time Samaritan's Purse goes into some other country after a war, they have all these practical needs to attend to. Famine and uh, people who are orphans and widows and without homes and just absolutely devastated. And that's what happens here. That's why I put worldwide chaos because with worldwide death comes worldwide chaos. Worldwide needs, worldwide pain. And... So that's the second seal. Worldwide chaos through the sword. Now let's go to the third seal. That's verse... Five, the third seal judgment that I call discriminating famine. So it's going to be worldwide famine, but there's going to be some discrimination to it. Because not everybody's going to suffer famine and poverty to the same degree. We know that from the text. In the future, at the beginning of the tribulation. And like I said, this is logical. Famine, poverty, lack of food, lack of resources, high prices, always follows wars, devastating wars. So this makes sense. Verse 5, and when he broke the third seal... I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, again, he's startled by these horses and the ones riding upon them. And behold, a black horse. Black horse. Just black. The imagery of black. A black stallion. Frightening. Scary. Intimidating. Gloom. Doom. That's what's going on. Black horse. There's a someone sitting on the black horse. He had a pair of scales in his hand. There's a picture of the scales there, the older scales, where you would weigh things. You would measure things. And in those days, one thing you measured was when you went to the market and you bought something and say if you were bartering and, or whatever, you want to buy some wheat and you put it on the scale and I'd like this much and I want a quarter, I need five quarts to feed my family and they would literally weigh it out on the scale. That's how they weighed things. So he's got this thing to weigh things with in his hand. Scale wasn't abnormal, but what he was being asked to weigh was abnormal. What is he weighing? Well, in this, he goes on. He's got a pair of scales in his hand, and I, I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures. It's probably God who sits in the center of the four living creatures. Calls out a quart of wheat for a denarius. A quart of wheat. That's what one person would require to live on per day. A quart of wheat. The problem is, a quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius was an entire day's wage for a grown adult. So that'd be like if I went out to work for 12 hours and I get paid for 12 hours one denarius, that's just enough to buy me food. Well, I've got seven children. They're not eating. No, I'm not eating. And we're going to be starving. So that's the implication. There's a shortage of food, a shortage of resources and money. Prices are skyrocketing. You've got a famine. You've got a, a horrible economy. By the way, uh, it says a quart of wheat for a denarius, and then it goes on, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Wheat and barley, everybody was dependent upon wheat. But wheat and barley, barley was kind of for the riffraff and the lowlifes and the poor people. The upscale people, the richer people, they didn't necessarily have to depend on barley. And the upscale rich people, uh, not only did they have food, they also had usually oil and wine with just about every meal, and that's at the end of verse 6. Uh, quarts of barley for a denarius and do not yet do not harm but literally adversity but do not harm the oil and the wine in other words there's not going to be a shortage of oil and wine well who has oil and wine well pretty much all the rich people so what's going to happen during this time is there's going to the middle class is going to thoroughly be eliminated and you're going to have the the haves and the have-nots so the rich people for the most part they're not going to suffer 
as much as the normal, the middle class, the masses, the poor people who are going to be do with, and they're going to be suffering. And that happens in every tyrannical, dictatorial society throughout history. There is always, there is no middle class. Like right now in this congregation, we we have the spectrum from those without to those well-to-do and everything in between. When you have a dictator, then that is totally eliminated. You have two extremes. That's exactly what's going to happen in the future. And the rich are going to take advantage of the poor. So this is speaking of discriminating famine. It's worldwide. It affects everybody that's uh, normal, masses, working class, and especially the poor. But the rich, they'll be okay. And they'll probably manipulate and take advantage of those who don't have. That is coming at a scale never imagined in the future. And then that takes us to the fourth seal that Jesus is going to pull off as these four judgments at the beginning of the tribulation happen probably rather quickly. The fourth seal judgment is what I call rampant death. There's probably been death in the last two phases, but this is death at a greater scale unprecedented level he tells us specifically and when he broke the fourth seal and i heard a voice of the fourth living creature say come and i look and behold once again he's startled by these horses and behold an ashen horse literally the greek word chloros where we get clorox what's that kind of yellow green nasty looking stuff that's why we call clorox clorox because clorox is kind of yellow green nasty looking stuff that's where the word comes from this is the paler of death this is what a corpse looks like after three days unattended this is the look of death. This English translation says ashen. Pale, yellow, deathly green. That's what he saw, this horse. And appropriately, there was somebody sitting on this deathly looking horse and his name was Death. The rider's name was Death. That words, And behind the rider is Hades tagging along. So death and Hades go together. They always do in Scripture. Death is physical death. Hades, the literal etymology has to do with that which is unseen, which speaks of the immaterial soul of a human being that disappears from the body upon physical death. So death, physical death, Hades, immaterial death, the death of the soul. Always go together. Physical death always happens first, then Hades. That's why they go together. So this this is the judgment of death. Death was following him, and authority was given to death. Get this, the middle of verse 8, over a fourth of the part of the earth. That is unbelievable. In John's day, maybe there was, who knows, 500 million, maybe less of people on the earth at the time. Now there's almost 7 billion people on earth. Say this happens a little bit in the future where we're at 8 billion people. That means that just in this one event, 2 billion people will die. 2 billion. That is mind-boggling. But you know what? We have the technology to do it. Today, we do. That's why this is a realistic possibility, even from a human point of view. But doesn't need that. God can make it happen. Two billion people, totally unprecedented. That's why I think this is uh, yet future. It hasn't happened. You have to take it at face value. It says specifically one-fourth, and there's nothing in the context to tell us one-fourth isn't literal. Middle of verse 8, authority was given them to kill a fourth of the earth. To kill or with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, that's widespread disease, and by the wild beasts of the earth that are going to be running rampant, killing people, untamed. Two billion people, maybe, plus being slaughtered and killed at this time. That's why I know this didn't happen in history. 
Never in the history of the world has one-fourth of the population at that time been instantly slaughtered or killed. There's been a lot of people, but never that ratio, ever. So this is yet future. And by the way, some, many commentators will say, well, the events we're reading and the, you know, the six seals, they're just a metaphorical representation of bad things that have happened since the fall. And they just keep repeating and happening over and over again. No, they don't. It says right here, uh, a fourth of the earth is going to be slaughtered through these specific means at this time. This hasn't been repeated and repeated all throughout history. This is yet future and will happen just as the Bible says. And as I said, through four means, sword. The sword is the implement of instant devastation that is utterly ruthless. It is horrific. Some people would say, well, it's barbaric and archaic and it's not around anymore. No, the sword is being utilized today to slaughter people, to cut heads off. If you're not aware you know, of Christians being persecuted around the world, especially by the Islamic faith through jihad, literally Christians are being slaughtered with the sword and anybody that doesn't submit to the religion. So the sword is still alive and well on planet Earth today as an implement of hatred and murder. And along that uh, famine, which makes sense, and like I said, pestilence with widespread disease and other devastation in these animals that are just totally out of control. So that is the first four judgments at the beginning of the tribulation. And it's quite quite shocking. Like with John, I just say, wow, behold, wow, that's a lot to take in. When you think about it and say, this is really going to happen on earth in the future. Well, it is. It's devastating. But the good news is, going back to that promise in uh, Revelation 3.10 where Jesus said, I'm going to take you away from that. You won't, if, you're, if you know Jesus Christ personally and you are a believer, and you are an overcomer, you won't even be there. You will not be on earth when this is happening. You will be up in heaven probably watching it happen. And at the end, you get to help Jesus implement it happening. Reigning and ruling on His behalf. So that's the promise to the believer, to the Christian, for those of us who know Him. And in light of that, I did want to end on good news so you could enjoy your lunch. Promises and blessings for the believer because of the work of Jesus Christ, so that we have the great hope that none of this is for those of us who personally are in the family of God. And I just want to read Romans chapter 5, 6 through 9. 6 through 9. In verse 9, at the middle of the verse, the Apostle Paul talks about this wrath to come. He calls, there's the coming wrath of God. This is it, Revelation 6. This is the coming wrath of God and everything to follow. But the good news is 6 through 8 for those who know Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, 6. So if you're a Christian and you know Jesus Christ, this promise is for you. And you are under the umbrella, the divine umbrella of God's protection through the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood of His death, and His powerful resurrection, and His intercession on your behalf. Paul says, for while we as believers, while we sinful people, while we were still helpless before we got saved, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for me. And if you're a believer, you can say the same thing. Christ died for you, took the wrath of God for you, absorbed the wrath of God for you. Verse 7, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. Verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love towards us 
towards believers, Christians, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is amazing. He didn't die for us because of anything we deserved or anything we did or anything he thought that we would think in the future. Totally gratuitous, unmerited, undeserved grace and mercy of a loving God. It's awesome. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. First in verse 6 he said, Christ died for the ungodly. We didn't have a name yet. Now it's Christ died for us. He knows us by name. Personalizes it. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified. In other words, God, now that you've accepted Jesus Christ, you have been justified. In a moment of time, God looked down on you and he pronounced you not just not guilty, he pronounced you innocent. Totally innocent, totally forgiven of all sin. Made in the likeness of Christ, much more than having now been justified once for all by His blood or His death. We, Christians, shall be saved from the wrath of God through Christ. Can I get an amen of that? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray to the Father who's a God of wrath, but also a saving, gracious Merciful God. Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word. God, I thank You that You have revealed everything we need to know. You've given us a balanced and comprehensive picture of the past, of our present, and of our future. I thank You that You're a holy God who can't tolerate sin. But I also thank You that You're a loving and gracious God and that You've provided a provision for our sin that offends you through Jesus Christ, His perfect life, His willing substitutionary death, powerful resurrection, and now His intercession on on behalf of sinners. Lord Jesus, thank You for being our mediator, for praying for us, for comforting us, for giving us the Holy Spirit. And thank You for this great promise that we know You're in control of all of world history, even the wrath to come, and have saved us as believers from Your coming wrath because there is no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus, we give you the praise and the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.